This interview was recorded on May 5th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Maram Taiba. Based in Kingston in the Canadian province of Ontario, Maram is a fantasy author and filmmaker. She made her first film, Munkir, in 2014, which is set in Jeddah in the 1970s and tells the story of a lonely housewife and her attempt to rekindle the romance in her marriage. And her second film, Don't Go Too Far, came out in 2016 and is about a mentally disabled Arab man who gets separated from his family on a New York subway and needs to find his way back home. Maram's two books, which we'll be discussing in this interview, are The Road to Elephants and Weathernose both of which would be better described by Maram than me, so we'll definitely give her a chance to do that later in this interview. You can follow her on Twitter at Maram Taiba, that's M-A-R-A-M-T-A-I-B-A-H, and check out her website at maram-taiba.com, where you can sign up for her newsletter, and you can follow her on Instagram at maram.taiba.author. In this interview, we're going to talk about Maram's background and career, and her work as a filmmaker and as a self-published fiction author. So thank you, Maram, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like and how you got into writing. Uh, hi, Lan. It's really nice to, uh, of you to have me here. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, the capital Saudi Arabia. And I was, you know, my nose was in a book the whole time. Uh, so I don't really remember much <laughs> other than all the books that I read. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that, what that has been, what has fueled my, uh, passion for writing. My mother got me reading, uh, English classics at a very young age. Um, I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't very excited about Arabic literature for for many reasons, um, but it was really English literature that had me, um, you know, it just lit me up. And I was in sixth grade when I decided it was just like this mountain of revelation for me. I just decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to write and I wanted to contribute and I wanted to make these beautiful things that I was exposed to. I want to, to wanted to put them back, you know, um, into, I wanted to, to, to give back to literature. Um, we're, we're big fans of, of literature on, on the podcast. Um, and I'm curious to ask, what was it about, uh, Arabic literature that just didn't, didn't grab you? I mean, to, to, to wildly generalize. <laughs> the language is really hard. Um, it's a beautiful language if you listen to it with, if you grow up with it and you can understand it. It is a beautiful language, um, but it's really difficult. It's not a, it's not a simple language that flows easily, uh, especially if you're a child and you're looking for a good story and you're looking for simplicity and you're looking for it. it for, to me, this is my own personal experience. Reading in Arabic felt like going through a thorny bush. That's what it felt like for me. Um, and English was like water. So I was, that was the first reason that had me attracted to English literature. The second reason was that there, um, I would say that there there was a decline in uh, Arabic literature, at least at the time. Um, uh, if I, I and I was a, as a young child, I was able to compare English literature with Arabic literature and see the differences in strength when it came to, you know, plot building and character development and and just originality and and so many genres out there. Whereas with Arabic literature, it just felt. Um, again, this is my own personal experience. To me as a child, it felt limited. And what was the uh, 
English literature that you were exposed to that uh, really grabbed you at such a young age? Well, <laughs> my mother introduced me to, you know, the classics like Charles Dickens, Jules Verne and all that good stuff. But she also introduced me to Sweet Valley. The okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm an 80s kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I read contemporary books and I read English, you know, classics, um, abridged version of classics. Um, my favorite was A Tale of Two Cities and probably still is among the classics. Um, and then I started to look for my own, you know, to find my own taste in books. And I, I started to scavenge for them on my own. Um, you know, the more skilled I became with the language and then the more, uh, you know, my taste was refined and what it is that I was looking for and what it is that I enjoyed. I found that it was fantasy that I loved the most. So I read stuff like uh, Lloyd Alexander's Prydain Chronicles. I read the Narnia series, Harry Potter, when it was time for Harry Potter. <laughs> Lloyd Alexander, that's ringing a bell for me. It yes, I've goes seen back a long way. Have you seen the Disney uh, cartoon, The Black Cauldron? Yes. Yes, that was Lloyd Alexander. Uh, you and, know, it's it's very and, it's very funny that the version okay. I had that book of was probably English, and it was called The Black Crotchin. <laughs> yeah, that's another name for the cauldron. Yeah. Um, Disney slaughtered the story. They just I just wish they never made it. They smushed the first two books together into one horrible film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember being disappointed a little bit myself when I saw it as well. Yeah, but yeah, no, that that's so that's really interesting. So you know, uh, Charles Dickens in the French Revolution to Sweet Valley High to I know. fantasy is quite the quite the wide range. Um, uh, one thing I'm curious about. So um, so you grew up in in Riyadh. Uh, you, you were born in Montreal, I gather from your bio. Yeah. Um, uh, what was it like as a young woman growing up in Riyadh in the 90s? Well, the 90s was the most horrible decade in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it's very different from what it is today, obviously. Uh, it, it just, it felt, and this is a child's experience through a child's eyes. It felt dark and gloomy and, and hot and dusty. Um, it was an era when, uh, you know, the ideology the the uh, sorry I'm going to repeat that it was a time when the predominant ideology was very fundamentalist and you could sense it through um, you know how people behaved and a lot of you know things that crept into our educational system and uh, but then it's it's it loosened up very 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 slowly and then in the last three years it has completely exploded wide open oh what do you mean by that well there's uh, there's a lot of change going on in Saudi Arabia right now very fast evolution I would say um, you know when it comes to women's rights and and like just opening up to the country to to people from outside. There's tourism, entertainment. A lot of the restrictions that we had to experience growing up are just like poof gone, um, and and that's pretty amazing. Um, but that you know, having grown up in the '90s as a child, I think that that experience on its own was uh, very intense for me, and it was it, it's actually um, driven me to write my first fantasy novel based on that experience. (laughs) 
Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that in a little bit, but um, uh, and we'll definitely talk about that at length, um, <laughs> or as long as you're willing to. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that about about your childhood. And so you you I, I'm look just looking at your LinkedIn profile. You made your way to the United States. Yes. And uh, what what spurred that decision? I did two years of film school in Boston University for my master's. Okay. Okay. And how did you like Boston? Boston. I love Boston. It's, it's, you know, and um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Sabrina starring Julia Ormond and Harrison Ford. There's this, there's this moment in the film when she describes how, you know, when she was sent away to Paris to study and then she kind of unleashes herself and she finds herself and she says, I found myself in Paris. To me, that's, I found myself in Boston. That's a, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And what, what did you do uh, after that? I went back home to Saudi Arabia and I dabbled with a, dabbled in a career um, in filmmaking. I tried different things. Um, I, you know, experimented with different startups and it was just a time of uh, jumping around from one thing to another until I, you know, settled at what it is that I actually want to make the priority in my life, which is writing and always has been writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, uh, so I wanted to ask you about your, um, your first film, uh, Munkir. Um, talk, just talk a little bit about that, that project. I mean, uh, what, uh, how, was, how, how did that come about? That was my thesis film. Okay. Okay. And I was fascinated with this group of characters and I wanted to experiment with it. Um, it was actually the experimentation ground for a TV series that I would then later write, um, the series is not produced, but it's it's just waiting to be, you know, set loose. Um, I have a, I've done a lot of work on that series with a group of mentors, and one of them is David Isaacs. He was a writer on Seinfeld, um, not Seinfeld, sorry, Frasier. Um, uh, he's a professor at USC in California. And uh, we did a lot of work on that series, but it was based on Munukir, which was me just experimenting with like what what would these characters look like, what would this world look like, and I filmed it in um, um, New Mexico. Uh, and because New Mexico surprisingly looks a lot like Riyadh, it looks a lot like Saudi Arabia. So we went down there as a student film crew, and we set up a 1970s set, which was you know beautiful and we filmed it and um that film went to the dubai film festival it went to the Cannes short film corner um yeah <laughs> that's about it yeah well it sounds it sounds uh, very um exciting and and quite the quite the challenge as well particularly i mean i mean i imagine it you said it was part this was part of your master's degree i i, I gather and so you would have had some funding that came from that no, I got the funding from my um, the university where I did my bachelor's okay. as an alumni. They funded me. Yep. Okay, because I've I've known some uh, playwrights and filmmakers uh, myself, and um, funding is a big deal. Yes. <laughs> and where it comes from and how you get it, the, the the miracle that it sort of to some the sort of dirty miracle that it represents when you finally finally get it, and then and then the responsibility of of using it. Wisely. Wisely. Yeah. Yeah. is like an incredible challenge. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, and then you did you did another film called Don't Go Too Far, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, Don't Go Too Far was the film that I wanted as my thesis film, but I didn't have the guts to make it at the time. Um, Don't Go Too Far is based on um, the character is based on my older brother who has a mental disability, and I wrote this story because it's never happened, but I, I just wanted to I just wanted to experiment with it and see um, it, because it stems from a fear of mine that we that I would lose my brother in a crowd. Uh, he's highly, he's older than me, but he's highly dependent on all of us. And uh, just the thought of losing him in a crowd is just, it just is terrifying for me. So I decided to make a film to um, explore that emotionally and kind of like just follow him in the story and see and kind of speculate on what he would do if he was ever alone in the world. And the story is about him this mentally challenged young man who accidentally gets separated from his sister on the New York subway. And he finds himself alone in New York city and he has to find his way home. Um, so this, the short film is like a day, his day in New York city looking for his sister. Um, it was a sweet heartbreaking film. I was crying the whole time on set. Uh, because the actor, the actor was superb. He, he sat with my brother, brother for a couple of hours and then he just, he did it. He was able to become that character. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, um, moved simply, I, I haven't watched it yet, but I was moved simply by the description of it. It's a very compelling idea. Yeah. Um, it's something that I think we've all had nightmares of our own one way or another of, of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, um, it struck me as kind of, I mean, you know, this is the way, this is the way art works, but to some extent, an apt metaphor for a current moment, um, where a lot of people who maybe, well, this is going a bit too far, but thought they were more independent when that, than they were, are realizing how dependent they are for their livelihood and their welfare mm. on, on everything working and the help that they get from other people. Absolutely. And that to be truly alone is um, terrifying. Yeah. And uh, and that the needs we have for each other are not incidental. They're fundamental. Absolutely. And it must have been, I imagine, a big, a big part of that kind of intellectual journey must have been making decisions about how other people would respond to a lost, perhaps strangely behaving... Um, yeah, Arab man in New York City. Yes, absolutely. That was a definitely part of my process. Um, I had different, you know, I had, I had different people. Some of them ignoring him. Some of them thinking he's a threat. I had a child who saw him for what he truly was. It was, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful exploration for me on a creative, in a creative sense. But emotionally, it just, it was. Very intense. And um, I see also, uh, just I've, when I was doing research for this interview, that you've, uh, amongst the many things you've done and, and are doing, um, you are also a travel blogger. Oh, I was a travel blogger. Yeah. <laughs> FearlessPilgrim.com uh, was my blog uh, for the past few years. I, I had been going through a deep dive into my own spiritual journey. And, uh, I did that through travel 
because I wanted to experience I wanted to experience different people's pathways or or traditions um, in their spirituality. And I used to and I used to travel with for that you know intention. And and I met some fantastic, beautiful, magical people. And I wrote about every experience, every destination as a sort of pilgrim. That's what pilgrimage. That's why I called it fearless pilgrim. Um, I am no longer writing those blocks, but they are available online. Um, and, but it has, it, it was a life changing experience while I kept it up. Um, I, I think I will forever be a pilgrim. I don't think I will ever stop, um, learning and look and, you know, uh, be, be curious about people's paths and people's traditions. And it was the people that you met that were the sort of primary adventure rather than the places? Both. Okay. No, that's a good question. It was both. Okay. It was both. Um, very often uh, before I went to a place, it was just, it was a very intuitive feeling for me. It, was, it wasn't like, it didn't come from a, oh, I have this list of places I wanted to go. No, it was more like, what is calling to me right now? And, and I, it, it, it didn't always happen that way, but very often I felt a calling by the place and, and then I would go there and then I would, you know, discover what, what it had in store for me. And do you have a favorite place? Oh, Bali. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. I've been going to Bali once a year for the past three years. I was hoping to go, you know, sometime soon, but with COVID, I don't think going anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, you know, being a travel blogger and things like that. So COVID comes up in, uh, pretty much every interview that we do nowadays. Um, I actually start, I've started, uh, date stamping, um, <laughs> the interviews with a little, this interview was ominous. This interview was recorded on bong bong, you know, at the <laughs> beginning of the interview. Uh, and, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So one of the one of the great things, one of the well, for me, one of the most fun things about this podcast is I get to talk to people and authors from all around the world, um, and uh, ask them about what what things are like uh, where they are. So in the past, it's been you know how are the protests, what's the war zone like, but um, uh, what's what are things like in Kingston? Well, I'm truly grateful to be living in such a sweet, charming place like Kingston. It's not a big metropolitan city where, you know, you're holed up in an apartment and there's really nowhere for you to go outside. No, Kingston is really, um, it, it's, I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it rural, but like you, there are really like residential neighborhoods with houses and you can just go outside and walk. Um, if you have a dog, you walk your dog, you can go outside and garden, you'll hear the birds, you'll see the sky. It's just, it's much more, I think it's much more liberating to be in a place like this than to be in a, in a city like Toronto, for example, or New York, um, stuck in COVID times. So, and there, there are so many natural reserves around us and forests that you can go and walk alone. Like there won't be any people around. Um, so you, so we have that liberty, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, for those for those who um, might not know uh, about uh, Kingston, Ontario, it's uh, on the shores of a great lake and has uh, lots of prisons and Queen's University there. Lots of prisons. <laughs> <laughs> now it doesn't sound so charming. No, no, no. It's a, it's a charming it's a charming place. Um, uh, Queen's a... University is very beautiful, actually. The campus yes. is gorgeous. Yes. And when I go biking there, I have it all to myself. And sorry, sorry to ask the local question, but does, does the oil city still 
what's it called? The Oil City Saloon still exist? I don't know. I moved to Kingston, so I'm, I'm probably not an, much of an expert to answer that question. Oh, when, when did you move there, sorry? August. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so um, uh, I'm sure I got the name of the country bar I went to there wrong. Uh, it was a few years ago, but it was a lot of fun. And yeah, Kingston's a fun place. Um, uh, and so actually what, what brought you to Kingston? If you don't mind. Oh, I'm, um, I'm doing a PhD in cultural studies at Queens. Okay. Okay. What's, what's your, uh, uh, what's your thesis about? Well, my thesis is an ever changing thing, but, uh, the short of it is I'm looking into gender performance, um, how children perceive gender performance through um, Arabic children's literature. Uh, That's, that's how I started. But like I said, it's an ever changing topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Still in the first year. So I get to jump around a little bit. Oh, you're in your first year. Mm -hmm. So you'd be taking classes and stuff like that. Yep. Okay. Okay. I I did a doctorate in English myself. Oh, wow. Um, But that was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian. So I did a, my bachelor's and master's in Canada, but then I did my doctorate at Oxford. So that, mm-hmm. that's, um, your, your ABD from the beginning, there are no courses yeah, uh, and no teaching, <laughs> which is some people see that as a, that as a perk. I saw it as a bit of a drawback, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, doing a doctorate is a wonderful journey Yeah, with many, many, many challenges. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> um, Try not to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you've got to you've got to just look at what's in the road the road in front of you. Um, yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. I actually didn't know that, uh, even though I try to re- research extensively on these things. But I guess I missed that's that. Fine. I don't. I don't believe I've written about it anywhere. Okay. 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 And um, actually, on that note, uh, how so? Um, uh, so you can't travel anymore, at least not in the short term. No. Um. But it sounds like you have a pretty good understanding of what things are like in, in Saudi Arabia now. Uh-huh. Um, how, I mean, just totally anecdotally, um, I've, I've actually, like, I peruse the news more than I should. Uh, but I've, I, you know, I read and I've read a lot about Saudi Arabia from all kinds of perspectives, but not from uh, the COVID perspective. What, what are things like for people there? Are people doing the, I imagine they're doing the sort of like distancing and stuff just like everywhere else. Yeah, I know the government is doing an amazing job with that. Um, I'm really proud of what, what's been done so far. They've been really strict about social distancing. There's been curfews and fines for people who break those uh, rules. Um, and they've been taking a lot of, you know, precautions. Um, there's been a lot of medical support. Um yeah, and they're even controlling the border. Like, uh, if you're Saudi and you want to return home after because you've been stuck somewhere before the the this whole COVID business happened, like if you were a student or if you were a tourist, they're they're really you know they're not just letting people flood the like come in through the border. They're they're getting people to come in by schedule so that you know they can control the um, uh, quarantining of these people coming in. So there, there's been a lot of amazing organization that's been going on during this time. And and people, just like the people, uh, the efforts that the people are making to get together and, and, you know, inspire each other. I see stuff on social media that just makes me really proud. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, moving on to uh, the next part of the interview. Where we, uh, so this has all been kind of a, you know, a build up to talking about your books. Um, and so uh, you've published two books, I gather, uh, The Road to Elephants and Weather Knows. Yes, uh, my recent one is Weather Knows. It's a, ch- it's a children's steampunk um, set in a, in a world called the Cerulean Universe. And it's about a old fashioned weatherman who wakes up one day to find that his career is being sabotaged because a 10-year-old girl has invented a machine that can predict the weather. So he, you know, in the middle of his vendetta against her to destroy her and her machine, he uh, ends up going to dastardly lengths and also discovers that she's way smarter than him. And has no sense of humor. And she has no sense of humor, no. <laughs> formidable, formidable opponent. Formidable child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, so uh, I've listened to a couple of podcasts that you've done uh, relatively recently, I think, uh, while researching for this interview. And uh, you mentioned before that the one of the people who um, recognizes the lost man for what he is uh, in New York is a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a very interesting view about, um, particularly the consciousness of the typical 11-year-old and where they're at in their in yeah. their, in their life. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, I am particularly enchanted by uh, that time in life when you're 11 years old, and um, it's it's a, it's it feels like the pinnacle of your childhood, where you you've collected all of the wisdom that you are supposed to have as a child, and but you still have that you know that that magic, that innocence, that you know belief and possibility. So it's kind of like a culminating like ball of energy it's it that is just at its highest and it's at its strongest and then puberty hits mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know you're just you know thrown headlong into this weird world where you're supposed to undo all of that and then uh, you know i think that we all spend a lot of our adulthood just looking for a childhood again just looking for that moment again um, and I'm particularly fascinated by that age. And I, I think that it shows up a lot in my writing. Cyprus is 10 years old. Um, and she's, you know, she's bordering around that age. And, um, I just, I'm very fascinated by how smart children are and how perceptive and how wise and how they're very often not listened to. And there's a very uh, interesting theme of, of innovation that's associated with youth youth in the book as well. Yes, yes. Um, it's Invention is a theme in this world. Um, uh, I have, um, I'm actually creating a lot of artwork from the Cerulean universe, and I share it, you know, exclusively in my newsletter. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, doing pieces that are, you know, Cypress's inventions and then Tarts. Uh, that's the lead character, the weatherman, his, his sort of designs for airships. And I share those things on my newsletter. Um, but I think it comes from my own fascination with new ideas with, uh, and it came at a time when I was still in college and I was, you know, bursting with creativity. I think I, I'm still bursting with creativity, but I, but I feel like at the time it felt so novel to me, like to be able to create and to be able to imagine things and bring them to life. I feel, I think that that, that was the energy behind the Cerulean universe that I wrote the book when I was in college. I don't know if I failed to mention that, if I mentioned that before or not. Um, 
Yeah, I wrote, no, you haven't mentioned that, but I had, I had, I, I was going to bring it up actually. So I was wondering if you could actually talk a little bit about that. So you've actually had this sort of in your storage for quite some time. I actually began to build the world in my head um, at a very, at a much younger age. I was maybe 13 years old when it started to kind of emerge in my imagination. And I never, I was never able to really put it into a story because I didn't know what the story was, but it just kept building and building and building. I kept seeing it and wishing I knew what the story was. And then one day, one boring summer in Saudi Arabia, I was just waiting for school to start and I see this character with a floppy straw hat and a and a crow on his shoulder looking across at the at the sea you know, on his, his own island. And I got really curious about him and I started to write and write and write. And then it just kind of unfurled. And Cyprus came in later in the writing process. And once she happened, it just felt like I had something. I was hooked and I, and I kept going with it. Yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating and kind of um, tantalizing you. In the, in the forward to the book, you talk about how the characters came to you mm-hmm. uh, before the story did separately. Yes. Um, and, and you, you, eventually settled upon a story for them to interact in. Yeah. And I think that what really attracted me to them is this, this dynamic duo, like he's a 42 year old man and she's a 10 year old girl and they're having this power struggle. It's not something you see every day. And I was just, I, I I knew I had something there. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about it a little bit, uh, and you know, kind of in the context of this podcast, um, for for a number of reasons, most of the people that we interview are um, people who uh, write technical books. Um, so this could be like the the chief software architect of an investment bank or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and age and innovation is a, th- a theme of our time to some extent with respect to technology. Absolutely. Um, and so, for example, I mean, for many of the people who listen to this podcast might not have been around at all at the time, but there was something called the dot com boom. Um, in the in the mid to late nineties, basically when the kind of World Wide Web took off and people could use web browsers and stuff like that to gather and present information and then eventually buy and sell things, um, which was an incredible revolution. But you'd get things like, um, you know, a, a tech founder barefoot on a throne kind of thing. Uh, the idea of very young people who became very wealthy. Um, but even going back further. Um, when the personal computer came out, and there's a point to all this, um, when the personal computer came out, before that, computers had been seen as this like highly professional kind of thing that engineers used. But when it came into the home, mm. although it was brought in often by parents who used it for work or something like that, the computer in, in popular kind of culture became understood to be something that kids knew how to use. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird that like it, that that stereotype has lasted to this day uh it says something a little bit about i don't know demography or something like you know the the baby boom generation and stuff like that still dominating our cultural discourse to some extent but even to this day you know there are a lot of people who associate the computer and innovation as a kind of like threat from the young mm-hmm. yeah and and that's you know thank you for bringing that up because i i I think about this a lot about the book and when I wrote it, I don't think that there was as much of a, um, there was as much booming innovation back then as, as there was today. And I don't think that, I think that, you know, children today, nowadays, they are, 
very like they're very they're very like Cyprus, I would say. They're too smart for their own good. Um, they know a lot of stuff that they shouldn't know. <laughs> um, and and they I, I feel like a lot of them have kind of lost some of their childhood because of this. Um, it's just interesting that I chose to publish the book at a time when it was it was more relevant than it was, you know, back then when I wrote it. Yeah, it's a really curious thing. I mean, there's the dark side to childhood and innovation as well, right? Like, um, you know, when I was a kid, certain things like just to be straightforward about it, like pornography, where like your friend's older brother might have a magazine hidden under his mattress that you find or something like that, right? But like nowadays, yeah, childhood involves kind of sudden exposure to crazy things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's wonderful that there's so much amazing children's literature for kids to read as well and hopefully be better exposed to. Sorry for going down that dark path a little bit. But um, but you also have written a book called The Road to Elephants. The Road to Elephants was um, – oh, it's a dark fantasy. It's not for children. I would oh. like to align that right now. Okay. Uh, no, don't give it to your child to read. Um, it's not for children. It does, the, the characters are children, but it's not for children. Um, because it does take a sort of, it, it starts to kind of, it starts out pretty charming and pretty um, whimsical, but then it slowly starts to take a darker path. Um, and the twist in, the, in that book, um, I've, I've heard like love-hate responses to it. Um, that book I wrote, um, I was in Boston and I was finishing up my degree and I, I was just, I wrote it out of sheer curiosity and I was actually listening to the soundtrack of the film Cracks. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's yeah. starring, starring Ava Green. Um, it had a very, I was, it was, uh, it was composed by Javier Navarrete who did, uh, the soundtrack for Pan's Labyrinth. Um, what I'm trying to say is that that soundtrack uh, really inspired a lot of the mood of that book. And I was so captivated by it and that's why I wrote it. Um, that's, uh, th thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, I read the beginning of it. It's, it's funny if, if the beginning was whimsical, then, <laughs> Uh, the rest is going to be a challenge. Um, it starts out with the story of uh, a young girl and her younger, even younger brother, kind of trapped in a house uh, by a caretaker who tells them that their parents are never coming back because they found a better life elsewhere, which was um, quite the challenging opening. To, yeah. That I that I honestly I honestly like mistakenly went into it thinking it was a children's book, um, yeah. and realized something else was going on, but hadn't hadn't I. I confess I haven't gone further enough to, to see, but now I'm definitely going to. Yeah. Part of the dilemma for me as a writer is writing, uh, writing about characters who are children, but then, you know, not having the book mistaken as a children's book. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's kind of dilemma that I had. Um, yes, the book is um, about these two children in the 1920s in Saudi Arabia who um, run away from home because of because of their abusive nanny, and they, they they run away to join the circus, and they've never been outside of the home, and uh, the road just takes them and shows them things that they've never seen before, um, and they're not quite prepared for what the road has to offer. Yeah, when you brought up Pan's Labyrinth. It all of a sudden kind of clicked for me a little bit. Yeah. I'm sure you did that on purpose. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so you're working on a sequel to Weather Knows. I am. I am so excited about it. It's still, I'm still in the beginning of the process, but um, I've had the idea for it for quite some time now. And, um, you know, with this COVID nonsense going on and, you know, I'm still in a, I'm in a phase in my degree where I'm not doing much. So I am writing now. I'm using this time to really get on it. Um, and it's a fun, this, this world, I love it so much. It's so whimsical and wacky and quirky and I just have a lot of fun with it. So I'm glad to be doing this during these times. And one of the uh, really interesting challenges of fantasy is world building. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your process for world building. And so for those, for those who might not know, um, if you're going to write a fantasy novel, you have to have a, a world that you construct that has kind of its own rules and things like that. And not only do you have to construct it and hopefully make it consistent, uh, but you also have to sort of convey it in a way to the reader that is um, perhaps, I should put, not overwhelming. Yes. Uh, world building is one of my favorite parts of this whole process um, because it's where you get to have fun with no expectations and it's where you get to uh, put ideas together and see if they work. Um, I like to get as playful as I can with this. I, I do mood boards. I have binders where I collect like images from that world, fabrics, you know, plants, anything that is sensual that brings it to life. And that's what I did with the Cerulean universe for years before I even wrote a story about it. I had I have this binder with, you know, pictures from Architectural Digest and from Natural Geographic and fabrics that I find, you know, in my daily life. Um, I collected perfumes um, just so that I could, you know, it, it, use all of my five senses to to immerse myself in this world um i like to one of the things that i i really enjoy doing is i like to cast my characters so i look for actors who look like my characters and i put them on a mood board um so tart for example would be hugh grant when he was younger <laughs> and um what else i i use i use a lot of you know, visual stimulation like tarot cards, um, anything that, that you know, takes it outside of my head somewhere where I can see it and feel it. And do you have like an encyclopedia or something like that? Like, mm, No. What do you mean? Like, well, what do you like, mean? like I mean, like if you, if you invent a new type of animal or a new type of phenom weather phenomenon or something like that, uh, where you like define it, how it works and stuff like that? That's actually a great idea. I am going to do that. Thank you. Yeah, it's just <laughs> my methodical mind, probably, or my worry about yep. making mistakes or something. Like yes, that. that is really cool. Yeah, but it's uh, but it's uh, I, one of the podcasts I was listening to uh, where you did an interview. You talked about you made the one really interesting point about we well, made many interesting points, but one of the interesting points that you made was about how it can't the world can't be. I mean, for certain projects, you might want it to be, but typically, you don't want the world to be too different from Earth. Oh yes. From Earth, yeah. Um, I have, I personally have trouble with uh, when authors who write fantasy or people who are still beginners who write fantasy try so hard to create something that is original and different and doesn't, you know, correspond to the rules of planet Earth. Um, you got to have gravity. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
that's just, I'm just making a joke, but like what I think works is, is to ground yourself in planet earth and then build around that. Because what happens, uh, for a reader is I'm, I'm just going to have trouble relating to your world if it's too different from our planet. I mean, the trees, you know, you can make the trees blue, but you got to have gravity and you got to have night and day. Um, it's just it's just a way to make sure that your reader can really step into your character's shoes without feeling lost, without feeling like they they have to spend so much energy understanding, you know, just the, the rules of the laws of physics in this place that you're taking me to. And and sometimes when there's no consistency, even um, it, it just gets more and more confusing. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons that point struck me so so much was um it reminded me of the reason i stopped reading stephen king's dark tower series i don't know have you ever read that no it's it's quite dark in its own way um you know quite fascinating but at a certain point it takes a turn where it kind of gets like in a very crudely way kind of meta that stephen king just communicates to you like everything you read is coming straight from my imagination and what i decide to show you mm. And it became just kind of like gross, like, <laughs> you know, like you're just, so you're just manipulating my mind and mm -hmm. subjecting me to your choices. And it's like, well, of course that's true of all books. Uh, yeah. but it was kind of like, I couldn't suspend disbelief anymore. And now I've just, it's just like become exercise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, uh, I think I find one of the, I mean, I, I like reading fantasy, but there are things that I've given up on, for example, for, for a number of reasons. Um, the Thomas, I don't know if you've read the Thomas Covenant series. Um, it's the name of the character. Um, this is something that uh, my brother who reads a lot more fantasy than I do talks about is sometimes authors, when they've like written too many books uh, in the same series, start to punish the characters. <laughs> <laughs> And like, I mean, I guess, I guess probably the, when you're designing the plot, which is something we could talk about as well, you know, you kind of like, you feel like you need to level it up again and again and make the challenge like even greater, but that mm -hmm. can, it can turn into just a kind of like torture porn for the mm -hmm. main character. Are you um, talking about Game of Thrones? So I've never read them and I never <laughs> will. Um, uh, it, I mean, I could talk about that for a long time. I could talk about how I think the Lord of Rings novels are poorly written. Um, <laughs> which makes me a lot of friends. Uh, but, um, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you plan on, on, on facing some of these challenges going forward? I mean, do you, do you try and, do you try and introduce people to, um, new things in the world kind of, uh, slowly and so not, not too many things all at once or, or sometimes yes. do you barrage them and just, just for fun? No, uh, I don't think barraging works. Um, I recently came out of a novel, actually, The Discovery of Witches. I don't know if you've ever read it or heard of it. It's, no, uh, no. it's, a, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy book about witches and vampires. And, um, you know, I could go on a rant right now, but you, you just got to stop me. <laughs> so well, I get if, if you want to, please do. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's important for people to hear what authors think about when they read other people's books and, you know, what drives them. Yeah, so I got I received this book. I, I'm I'm looking for a fantasy book to read in my quarantine during my quarantine, and I I get this book in the mail and I start reading it, and I'm hooked. I'm just hooked. The story is amazing, but then I find out that it's it's a romance, which is okay. I'm fine with romance. I I I, I have read romance before, but then it starts to get progressively. Um, complicated and the the author kept throwing new secrets at me all the way to the last 
bit, like all the way to the last few chapters, there's still, there's a new villain that shows up out of nowhere and um, causes the worst kind of damage ever. And uh, it was just exhausting. It was exhausting. It didn't feel like there was a, there was a gentle lead in and then there was a culmination and there was that kind of denouement at the end. There was enough time for that. At least there was just always something going on. And the character just kept fainting and losing consciousness and then her boyfriend would revive her and tell her to you know take care of herself he put her to bed and then she'd faint again and then he put her to bed and it was just oh my god stop um i uh, i i i couldn't help myself i watched the uh tv show on sundance now discovery of witches was made into a drama series oh, wow, okay. Okay. matthew good who was my all-time crush um it was I really appreciate what they did on the show because they cleaned up the book. Like they removed all of the nonsense with the character acting like a damsel in distress the whole time. Um, they, they kind of leveled out the, the love interest instead of having him be this like possessive, you know, controlling vampire. He's more enlightened and uh, you know, he's just, he's just, there's a balance between them as a couple and um uh they just they they cleaned out all of the things that were unnecessary and then they rearranged the events so that you're aware of who the dark force is from the beginning and you're not just like finding out in every chapter there's this new thing um so I forgot where I was oh, going. No, no that, that you were just going to go on a rant, and I, that that was that was very good. That the um, <laughs> it, it's inter- it, no, they, these are they, these are really interesting challenges. Um, uh, you know, and they're, they're probably not necessarily resolvable or knowable in advance. But I think that a lot of people, when when you're alone writing, um, particularly if you're writing certain kinds of genre fiction, uh, you feel like you kind of need to give a new surprise to keep yeah. people reading. Uh, the advice you might get would be. Um, if you don't keep up the action, I think actually this was one of the podcast interviews I was listening to with you or some, I think it was not you, but the person who was interviewing you was saying, if you don't give them enough action early enough, uh, uh, an avid reader of these, these novels might just stop reading yours and go to another one. That's going to give them the, the dopamine hit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. It's yeah. a balance between that. We were, we were going to, we were talking about barraging uh, readers with information I think it's a balance between, you know, giving them um, controlled uh, spurts of action or surprises that are that are well, you know, designed so that it fits in in the arc without creating too much confusion and chaos, um, and also, you know, not not introducing all. Of, if you're planning to write a trilogy or a series, you don't need to introduce everything about that world all at once in the first book. And that's something I learned in my recent process with the fantasy book that I uh, recently finished um, is, is that there was this big plot, uh, something in the plot that, that was, you know, it was significant in the story, but I had to cut that out because I, I was working with a mentor of mine and we discussed me actually introducing that later in other books because there was room to do that and you don't need to overwhelm your reader with all of that information about how this world works all at once. It's like in the Harry Potter books. There's so many things about, um, you know, the intricacies of, of uh, the, the magical tradition and like the politics of that world. You don't get all of that in 
the first Harry Potter book. The first Harry Potter book is just an introduction. You know, it's it's a little bit even naive, right? But then it starts to get more and more complex as Harry Potter grows up and he starts to understand his world better. So you as a reader, you're you're understanding this world with your character. You don't need to tell everyone about how terrible the, you know, the Ministry of Magic is from in the first book. You find that out later in the fifth book. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting you say that. Not to get too too sort of specific, but um, uh, did you watch the Matrix movies? I watched the first one. Oh well, good for you for stopping there. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, the 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 break that happens is that in the first movie, and that that makes the subsequent movies terrible, is that in the first movie you're with Neo, and you learn about the world with him. Uh, mm-hmm. But the second movie starts with a jump to the future. So now Neo knows a bunch of stuff you don't know and you're a stranger to him and a stranger to the world that he's in mm-hmm. all of a sudden, which completely causes this break. Um, and yeah, that's one of the things I haven't read. I've read a bit of the, the, the philosopher's stone or whatever it's called in America. The first, the first, Sor- um, sorcerer's what the sorcerer's stone, the sorcerer's stone. Uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, it, it's it's like one of the things that like it's so brilliant about that series that I've read about and you know not read, but is yes, exactly what you just described that you you grow up with Harry, mm-hmm. um, and it's just a brilliant solution to some of the problems that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. um, which is you know that the person the, the character you're with is discovering these things as you are as well, uh, so you're so you're not alien to the world that they're in any more than they are. Um, uh, yeah, and so on that note, um, uh, in the last part of this interview, we talk, like to talk about some of the challenges uh, that come with self-publishing and writing. And so you talked about having a mentor, but do you, do you uh, have you, before you, you published Weather Knows, did you show it to a bunch of different people? Uh, I worked with um, a couple of editors who gave me their thoughts. Um, so I, I got feedback uh, in that sense, and I did have friends and family read it. Um, other than that, uh, I, I, I submitted it to, um, an online magazine once and they loved it. Um, but that's, that's about as much exposure it had before it was published. And does, um, operating independently like that come, come naturally to you? Um, I think in this day and age, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Like you have a lot of control, especially with the creative creative part, like the, the book cover for Weather Knows, I'm really proud of. And I'm so happy that I found Leah Palmer Price who made the cover for me because she really understood my world. And I was able to communicate that to her and we were able to go back and forth. And um, so I had complete control with that. But then the other part of it is, it just becomes challenging in a sea of competition. Um, it's not like, Apparently, it's not like in in the olden days when you would just mail your manuscript and hope somebody accepts it and then they do all the work. Um, Now, with social media, you are responsible for a big part of that marketing and a big part of that building of an author platform. Yeah, by the way, it is it is I was going to bring that up. And so you've you've answered the question already. But like, how did you get that fantastic cover for that book was going to be one of my next questions. It's just it's just amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, that that challenge um, that you described—it's interesting. It's um, that is a challenge faced of, of building the author platform and doing marketing yourself, faced not only by self-published but also by conventionally published authors nowadays. Mm-hmm. Kind of 
infamously, um, you know, uh, even, even a sort of like, you know, big five publishing house might be like, well, how are you going to market your book? Mm -hmm. You know, and you've got to give them a marketing plan for what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And increasingly a lot of authors are facing this situation where it's like, what, what, if I've got to do all my own marketing, why would I sign away all the rights to you? And, uh, in particular, actually right now, I mean, who knows how long it's going to last, but with, you know, COVID-19, there are particular challenges around print books. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, people being apprehensive to order them, uh, you know, having to wait a few days before opening the package, things like that. Um, that are, and there's all kinds of other things like really complicated. Oh, really? I just wrote the package open and started reading. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Everybody has their own approach. Um, uh, personally for me, I, I touch all the food as soon as it comes into the house, but I leave the packages that I order. I, it's kind of <laughs> arbitrary. Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, and, and that, that competition for eyeballs and things like that is, is really difficult. Um, uh, so one, one thing that, that comes up and I'm sure you've maybe read, uh, in the self-publishing world is should you, uh, keep all your books in one, keep like, let's just talk about one book. You could, should you, should you keep your book in one place or should you go wide and publish in a lot of different plate, the same book on a lot of different sites? What, what's your approach to that as a self-published author? Um, I currently have my books on Amazon and, uh, for me, it's, uh, I don't know, that's just a personal choice. For me, it's a matter of I want to master this and then I want to think about the next step. Um, I just I just felt overwhelmed by the idea of throwing my book out in different places and then having to like manage and monitor in different areas. Um, I don't know if this is the correct way to do, to do it or not, but this is what I felt comfortable with when I first started. Yeah, the um, I would just just on that note, the. Uh... at least to me, the best advice I've come across when it comes to this kind of thing is always do what, what you enjoy doing. Um, don't, don't like say, uh, you know, a lot of people like might feel pressure to like become a master of the Facebook ad or something like that. And it's like, no, you know, if you're not into that, (laughs) do the things that you're into. Those are the things where you're going to succeed. Learning the ropes of, uh, Amazon AMS. Mm -hmm the um, um, app advertising platform on, on Amazon and it's kind of like, you know, working on the stock market or something. Um, uh, just, just in the sense that you need to monitor it daily and kind of, you know, t- toggle the bid and like um, experiment with what works best for your book. Um, but yeah, like I just feel like at, there's a lot to learn already on Amazon that I don't want to at this time worry about other platforms. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great analogy to, uh, the stock market because, um, uh, you know, one thing about it, when you invest in the stock market, you're investing in companies that you don't control. Um, and when you buy an ad, Amazon ad, they've got an, they've got algorithms that you don't control that change all the time and that are not transparent. Um, and so it's a bit of a game. And mm-hmm. you're also competing against people who are paid to do it all day long. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, and the, the, which is not to say don't do it. It's just, it's just like that. That's like, a, I think an extremely great, great analogy for, for what it's like to use those, those systems in that way. And it's a real challenge. And it's really interesting too, because, you know, um, 
you know, we live in a, if you're in Amazon, you're in a world where they know how many pages of your book someone has read um, uh, and how far they got in, mm-hmm. for example, or how much time they spent on it. And a lot of people in the self-publishing world are sort of confronting these, this thing where you're battling these algorithms where like, um, who, who knows, right? Maybe Amazon favors an author whose book gets bought and someone only reads 30 pages and then goes and buys another book. Mm-hmm. You know, because then, then, you know, the natural thing would be to think, oh, they're going to favor the, the author whose book gets fully read. Mm-hmm. But then that person's wasting time that they could have been spending buying other books that they have read. Mm-hmm. Maybe Amazon makes more money from authors whose books get abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a curious space to be in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, um, thank you very much for uh taking the time and for talking about your background and career and your, your films and your books and uh, your approach to, to writing and being an author um, and for your experience right now uh, <laughs> with everything that's going on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you very much for uh, being a guest on the front matter podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the front matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to try being a lean pub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.